So, when we look at physics, the one thing that confuses a lot of people is light, because it acts as both a wave and a particle, right? But then, the first time we learn it, we learn it as just a bunch of lines, you know, just shooting around the place. Now, when we learn it as a bunch of lines shooting across the place, that's what we call ray optics, right? And when we look at it as a wave, then it's wave optics. Now, ray optics is just an approximation of wave optics. It's like when you go and stand at a beach, you stand right on the shore. You can see the waves of water, you know, as they go up and down, they hit the shore and go back. But if you stand far away, like maybe on top of a lighthouse or something, then you can't see the waves moving up and down. You can only see them coming to the shore, hitting the shore, and moving back, right? So in the first case, the size of the wave was comparable to the size of the observer or the object, right? So here we can consider the wave-like nature of the light and we call it wave optics but then we, when we were at the top of the lighthouse then um, the size of us like you know us and the lighthouse together was a lot bigger than that of the waves and because of that we approximated it and considered it to just be a bunch of straight lines now when do we consider light to fall under the whole ray optics part the first one is when the objects are much bigger than the wavelength of light and number two it's when the wavelength of light is between 400 nanometers and 700 nanometers basically the range of visible light now let's move forward to the laws of reflection now when we look at the laws of reflection the most important thing the one that stands out is the Fermat's principle this basically tells us that Light always takes a path wherein the time it takes to reach from one point to another is the minimum, right? When we look at math or mechanics and physics, then we used to say that um, the shortest distance is what matters, right? And it would be the perpendicular distance. But when it comes to light, it doesn't care about the distance. All it cares about is the time, reaching point B from point A in the least amount of time possible. And from that, we get that the sine of the angle of reflection is equal to the sine of the angle of incidence, right? So if these two signs are equal, that means the angles are equal. So the angle of reflection is equal to the angle of incidence. Now, how do we measure this angle of incidence and the angle of reflection? We just take whatever reflecting surface we have and draw a perpendicular to that. Now, if you have a curve curved mirror, then you take a line that passes through the center of that curved mirror. It would have been part of a bigger sphere, am I right? So that would be something we call our normal. Now, the angle that the ray of light makes when it first hits the surface with that normal is called the angle of incidence. And the one that it makes as it bounces off again, with respect to the normal, that would be called our angle of reflection. And with that, we come to the end of Fermat's principle. Next, we come to the types of the objects and the types of images. The first one is 
Um, let's start with the uh, image, that's a lot easier. When we look at a real image, this is basically what's formed when the reflected rays actually meet at a given point. They actually converge, and because they're meeting at that one point, we see an image at that point. And the other type is a virtual image. A virtual image is basically when the reflected rays appear to come from a given point. They appear to meet. That would be a virtual image. It's not there, but we think it's there. Now, following this, we come to the types of objects. Now, a real object, you know, it's tangible, you can see it, it can be moved around and all that. Next would be our virtual object. The virtual object is basically where the incident rays could have met if whatever medium wasn't in the middle. So let's say I have two rays from infinity converging, right? If I hadn't placed a mirror in between them, they would have converged at a point C. But now I've placed um, a mirror in between them, so now they can't meet at point C, right? So where they could have met, point C, becomes the virtual objects. Object, sorry, and on the opposite side, we get a real image. A virtual object gives us a real image. Now that we're done with the basics, let's move on to the reflection part of the chapter. Now, the first thing that we're going to be dealing with would be the plane mirror. Now, you know enough about the plane mirror. You know that when you look at yourself in the mirror, your right becomes the left and the left becomes the right. There's lateral inversion. Your image doesn't seem to be upside down, so the image is erect. If I were to put a screen behind the mirror, I wouldn't see um, any rays of light actually meeting. Or same thing, if I put it in front of the mirror, no rays of light would actually meet. So the image is virtual. And what else? If I am two meters away from the plane mirror, then my image is two meters away from me within the mirror, if that makes sense. So the object and the image are equidistant from the plane of the mirror. Um, that being said, we can move on to the spherical mirrors now. Or not just spherical mirrors. Spherical mirrors are a part of a bigger set of mirrors called the curved mirrors. They can be parabolic, elliptical, and over here spherical. Um, now we're going to be focusing mainly on the spherical mirrors and depending on which side is silver, meaning which side is being made to be the mirror, um, we classify them as convex or concave. If Let's just take our spoon for example, right? If we you know the part that we take to eat, the part that holds the food, if the inner part of that is silvered, then it becomes a concave spherical mirror. Now, if you turn that spoon around, you know that bump that you get? That part, if that part is silvered, then it would be a convex spherical mirror. And now for some terminology. The center of curvature is basically the center of the larger spherical mirror from which our spherical mirror was derived. The pole is the center of the spherical mirror where the principal axis passes through. The aperture is the vertical gap between the upper and the lower um, limits of the lens. The principal focus, or yeah, the principal focus is the point at which the focal plane intersects the principal axis. Now, what is the focal plane? 
this is basically the locus of all points where the rays coming from infinity appear to converge or appear to diverge from. And finally, the focal length, it's the distance between the focal plane and the plane of the pole of the mirror, sorry. And the radius of curvature is the distance between any point on the mirror and the center of curvature. Next, we come to the Cartesian sign convention. The first thing we need to remember is that whenever we're measuring anything, we should always start from the pole and go to wherever we need to go. The next one is um, with respect to vertical movement. If any object is above the principal axis, then it's considered to be positive. If it's below the principal axis, it's supposed to be negative. Next is the horizontal part, and this part can get confusing, but it's actually very simple. All that it says is that whenever you consider ray optics, right, we're considering a ray of light moving, right? So if we measure in the direction that the light travels, say light is traveling from left to right, if I also measure from left to right, then the measurement will be positive. But if the light is traveling from left to right and I'm measuring from right to left, I am measuring in a direction opposite to that of light, so the measurement will be negative. Next we have a few derivations for a few formulae. I don't think I can explain the derivation. The first one, I'll just tell you what the results are. The first one is that the focal length is half the radius of curvature, f is equal to r divided by 2. Next would be the mirror equation, which says that 1 by v, which is the image distance, plus 1 by u, which is the object distance, is equal to 1 by f. Now, one thing my teacher always tells me is that you only apply the sign convention twice. The first is when you're deriving the equation, and the second time you apply it is when you're solving a question using that equation. If you're trying to find any results anywhere in the middle, you never use the sign convention because that is already taken care of. So our mirror equation would be 1 by v plus 1 by u equals 1 by f. Following this, we come to the linear magnification. The linear magnification is basically the ratio of the height of the image to the height of the object, which is also equal to the negative of the ratio of the image distance divided by the object distance. Following this, we come to um, the various cases of image formation when the object is at um, varying distances. Um, for this, it's not really a memorization-based thing. I think, for me, I just remembered the rules of like drawing the ray diagrams and stuff, and based off that, I was able to draw my conclusions. But let's try it out. First condition, not condition, the first situation, or case, rather, is when the object is at infinity. When the object is at infinity, the image will be formed at the focus, and, oh, I forgot to mention, We'll start about, we'll start talking about um, the varying cases with respect to the con concave mirror first. So number one for a concave mirror. When the object is at infinity, then the image will be at the focus. It'll be real and inverted, and it'll be very, very diminished. Now, if the object is just beyond C, the center of curvature, then the image will be somewhere between C and F. It'll again be real and inverted. This time, it'll be just a little diminished. 
If you keep an object at the center of curvature, then the image is also formed at the center of curvature. It's real and inverted, and it's the same size. If you keep the object between the center of curvature and the focus, then the image will be beyond C, it'll be real and inverted, and it will be magnified. If you keep it at F, the image will be formed at infinity. It'll be point-sized, but it would... I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry, it won't be point-sized, but it will be magnified. It is, again, real and inverted. And finally, it's when we keep the object between the focus and the pole. At this point of time, it forms a virtual erect image behind the mirror that is extremely magnified. Now let's move on to our convex mirror. Um, when the rays come from infinity, then they reflect outwards, but if you retrace that outward projected reflected ray, they eventually meet at the focus. So this is what we meant when they appear to diverge from a given point. And if it's at any other position, you know, closer to the, uh, closer to the um, convex mirror or farther than the nature of the image, it's always virtual and erect, but it's always diminished. Now, we learned all this. Um, let's go back to the magnification for a bit. I spoke about lateral magnification, right? So we see that the object is just standing on the principal axis. What would we do if an object was, say, lying down? Say we take the same object and we make it lie down on the principal axis. How would we find the magnification then? Well, we consider two ends of the object, let's say A and B, and then we consider each of those points A and B to be their own object, right? So when we consider object A, then it's at a distance of U, and then object B is U1, and object B would be at a distance of U2, so the length of the object would be D, right? U2 minus U1, that would give us D. Now, after this, we apply the mirror formula to A and B individually, um, and we find that the image of A would be V1 at V1, and the image of B would be at V2. So now V2 minus V1 gives us D prime, and D prime would be the new image size, right? So after finding this, we can say that our magnification will be equal to D prime divided by D. Now, since we're talking about magnification, let's also talk about one of the important results. And remember, when we're figuring out what the results are, we don't use the sign convention again. The first one is m is equal to f divided by f minus u, and the second is m is equal to f minus v divided by f. And with that, we come to an end, um, the end, rather, of the reflection part of this chapter. So now let's move on to refraction. When we considered reflection, we were looking at some silvered surface, right? And light just bounced off of it. Now, when we consider refraction, what's happening is light is moving from one medium to another medium. It's not bouncing off, it's just moving. And depending on the optical densities of these mediums, light will either move towards the normal or away from the normal. Now let's say that we're going from air to water. What happens is when 
the light is in air, it can move really, really fast, right? But then when it comes into water or a medium that is more optically dense, greater electromagnetic density, what happens is um, there is a sudden decrease in the velocity, right? So in order to compensate for that decrease in velocity, the light ray sort of shifts towards the normal, right? So if the light, you know, touched the medium with an angle um, I, angle of incidence, then the angle of R will be lesser. The angle of refraction will be lesser than the angle of incidence because it moves towards the normal, right? It's like you're walking through empty fields, you're not walking, you're running through empty fields, right? But then you move in, you run into a crowded street. At this point of time, you've got to change your path, right? Because you're still running with that same amount of energy, you still got to change your path in order to make sure that you can continue to move. On the other hand, if we start from a denser medium and then move to a rarer medium, then what happens is it's like you break out of that crowded street onto some open land, right? So there's a sudden increase in velocity. And to compensate for that increase in velocity, the rays move away from the normal. Now from this, we get Snell's law. Snell's law tells us that the refractive index of a medium is equal to the sine of the angle of incidence divided by the sine of the angle of refraction. Now, when we look at refractive index, which was basically what we got when we divided or when we got the ratio of the sine of the angle of incidence and the sine of the angle of refraction, we see that the refractive index is of two types, the absolute refractive index and the relative refractive index. Now, the absolute refractive index, um, it's basically when you start from air or a vacuum and then move into some medium. So in this case, we represent refractive index by n or mu. Um, our mu ma, the first um, letter would be where we're ending and the second letter is where we're starting. It's kind of the opposite. Mu ma, which, is ba which basically tells us that the mu or the refractive index when we end up at a medium after starting at or starting in air is equal to c divided by me, by v not by me. You can't divide C by me. I don't, I don't want to divide C. <laughs> so yeah, the absolute refractive index is equal to C divided by V. And relative refractive index would be, again, um, if you take, say, mu 2, 1. This is the refractive index when you end up at 2 after starting from 1. So in this case, mu2, 1 would be v1 divided by v2. It's the opposite, right? And velocity is equal to the frequency times the wavelength, right? So mu2, 1 would be lambda1 divided by lambda2, just like mu2, 1 is equal to v1 divided by v2. Now, how do we generalize Snell's law? Um, when we look at the absolute refractive index, we get sine i divided by sine r is equal to mu divided by 1. So we get that 1 sine i is equal to mu sine r. 
right? And if we keep doing this for a bunch of um, parallel slabs, we get that mu sine i is a constant. So if we have, say, two media, then mu1 sine i1 is equal to mu2 sine i2, so on and so forth. Now that we're done with that, let's move on to the idea of lateral shift and normal shift. Now, when you look at lateral shift, this is basically what happens when you have a really thick medium of, say, um, a greater optical density, right? And yeah, the lateral shift is basically um, the distance between the original path of light and the path that it took after refraction through, say, a glass slab. So our lateral shift is represented by delta, where delta is equal to t divided by cos r, the cos of the angle of refraction, times the sine of i minus r, the sine of the angle of incidence minus the angle of refraction. So delta is equal to t divided by cos r times sine of i minus r, that is our lateral shift. Now let's move on to the normal shift. The normal shift is basically what happens when um, the light is almost incident, like almost along the normal. It looks like the light is appearing normally to the surface. And because of that, if an object is at a depth, say D, from the interface of the two media, then it will appear to be at d prime, which is the apparent depth. And d prime is equal to d divided by mu. Now, if we want to get our normal shift out of this, this would be a lowercase delta, we get that the normal shift is equal to t times 1 minus 1 by mu. Now, when we have compound slabs and we have to find the normal shift, we consider each of them to be in error alone. So if we have slab one, then we consider the slab to be in air alone, right? So then the normal shift, um, delta one, would be t one times one minus one by mu one. And if we looked at slab two, it would be t two times one minus one by mu two. And the total normal shift would be the sum of these two. Now, I've been repeating t a lot when we've been talking about these various types of shifting, and I don't think I've told you what it is. The T is basically the thickness of whatever we're measuring. So now that we're done with that, let's move on to total internal reflection. Total internal reflection is basically when, um, instead of refracting you know, outwards, it just bounces off that interface and goes back in, right? So what are the conditions? The first is when the ray of light is going from a dense medium to a rare medium, right? So before we move into anything else, let's just think about this. Say we're going from a dense medium to a rare medium. As our angle of incidence increases, our angle of refraction decreases. I'm sorry. Um, as our angle of incidence increases, our angle of refraction also increases. And at one point, our angle of incidence is so high that 
our angle of refraction is 90 degrees. That means it's being refracted along the surface, along the interface of the two media, right? So in this case, um, our incident angle of incidence will be considered the critical angle. So sine C would be equal to one by mu. And in order for total internal reflection to occur, then our angle needs to be, our angle of incidence needs to be greater than the critical angle. Because if our angle of incidence is equal to the critical angle, then it gets refracted 90 degrees to the normal, meaning along the interface. If it gets, if the angle of incidence is lesser than the, ang the critical angle, then it just refracts outwards. But if the angle of incidence is more than the critical angle, only then it, ref it reflects inwards. It appears to reflect inwards. Okay, I kind of lost my train of thought. I don't know where I left off. Uh, okay, so let's just go back to this. Um, the critical angle when we're going from any rare to any dense medium. Um, sine C is equal to mu1 by mu2, where mu2 is greater than mu1, signifying that mu2 is more optically dense than mu1, and because of that, the speed of light in mu2 is much lesser than it is in mu1. Now, where is this concept of total internal refraction, um, sorry, reflection, total internal reflection applied? First one is the sparkling of a diamond. The refractive index of the diamond is 2.4. It's one of the highest. So this means that sine C, which is the inverse of the refractive index, will be very, very, very small, right? So when we look at um, what the critical angle of diamond is, it's around 24 degrees. So at any point of time, the light is incident at an angle almost always greater than the than the critical angle and because of that the light is reflected internally right and this light is reflected internally and it keeps bouncing off each of the sides and gives you that sparkling effect next would be when we consider reflecting prisms um, so when we look at say an isosceles prism or an isosceles right angled prism. We have two sides at 45 degrees and one at 90, right? So in this case, our critical angle is lesser than 45, but whenever a light passes through one end, it usually enters normally. So the angle of incidence is 45. And because the critical angle is much lesser than 45 degrees, we again see total internal reflection. Now, why is total internal reflection a lot better than normal reflection? When we look at a mirror's reflecting energy, we see that it's about 30 to 40% of the total energy. So if, say, 100% of light energy was incident on the mirror, we get 30 to 40% back. But if you look at TIR, it's a manifestation of refraction, right? So it gives back 70 to 80% of the total energy. The next thing is a mirage, right? 
So basically what happens is the heating of the lower atmosphere happens more because of the reflected radiations rather than the incident sunlight. And this is governed by the greenhouse gases. As a result, the lower layers of air are hotter and less dense, while the upper layers are less hot and more dense. So we see that when light is entering, it has to pass through a dense and then into a rarer medium. The refractive index of the air keeps on decreasing as we travel closer to the surface of the Earth. That means it keeps getting rarer as we move towards the Earth. As a result, the light coming from the upper layers towards the lower layers keep on bending away from the normal and eventually cross criticality and come back upwards. Since we observe this, we feel we feel as though the image of the object is being formed below the ground, giving rise to a shiny feeling on the ground. With that being said, let's move on to something a lot more exciting, the refracting spherical surface. With this, after learning about refracting spherical surface, we can wrap this segment up. So the refracting spherical surface, there is a huge derivation, but I don't think I can explain that, so I'll just tell you the result. The result of the derivation is N2 divided by V minus N1 divided by U is equal to N2 minus N1 divided by R. Here I'm using N for the refractive index because I'm tired of saying mu. So what does this tell us? The image medium, the refractive index of the image medium divided by the image distance minus the refractive index of the object medium divided by the object index is equal to the image medium refractive index minus the object medium refractive index divided by the radius of curvature. For multiple surfaces, we just use the formula again and again. Now, what happens when we look at a plane surface? When we look at a plane surface, r tends to infinity. So n2 divided by v minus n1 divided by u is n2 minus n1 divided by infinity. So we get n2 divided by v is equal to n1 divided by u. From this, we can conclude that the refractive index divided by the distance as measured in that medium is a constant value.